I appreciate you coming out for this uh, presentation. The subject is Christianity in the Natural Sciences. Uh, subtitle is Deep Apologetics, and that'll become uh, hopefully clear uh, as we get into the presentation. Um, if there's one book that I would recommend just kind of address the general uh, subjects that we're going to cover here, it would be this one by John Lennox, who is from uh, Oxford University and uh, Christian Apologetics and travels all over the world making great presentations. He's just a wonderful guy to listen to. And the book is God's Undertaker Has Science Buried God. In a sense, that's part of the subject that we'll, we'll be addressing here. So this has been a real good resource book for me in, in preparing some of this material. But if you want one book, this is, this is a good one. His name is John Lennox, L-E-N-N-O-X. Okay, yeah. thanks. Okay. Okay, I guess I'm going to have to be in a little better behavior for this session than I was the first one. Uh, okay, uh, we'll start out with some basic questions just to kind of set the context. Does the natural world point to a creator? Does it point to natural unguided causes alone as the explanation for the origins of mankind? <clears throat> this question about the origins of mankind is critical to the worldview that we adopt, the way we see ourselves in the world. And the question is, what do the natural sciences have to say? Should this question be of concern to evangelical Christians? Yeah, I think so. What is the place of the natural sciences in the Christian view of the world? Uh, does it have a place, or can we just kind of walk away from all of that and let everybody else take care? Do we have an interest? Intelligent design, so what? We've, this stuff's been out there for the last 20, 25 years. Uh, where's it going? What does it mean? What are the consequences? Uh, what does it matter to the natural sciences? What does it, how does it affect the Christian view of the world? Clearly, as a believer, we see evidence of design uh, that's reassuring. We see this consistency in nature with our fundamental beliefs about the nature of God as creator. But does it go further than that? Can we put a point on this, like a spear, that can kind of penetrate into our culture and make a difference? Is there a legitimate place for intelligent design in the natural sciences, uh, in science education in public schools? Okay, yes. Okay, which question? Here? Second from the top. No. There you go. Oh. Just a, just well, we're evangelical Christians, right? And there's a lot of them aren't, and I'm not worried about spending a lot of time talking to them right now. So it's the focus. What my experience is the conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians are the ones that are going to be responsive to this subject. At least I hope. <laughs> so was I being picky? Yes. Okay, the topics we'll look at is the war between science and religion, uh, the present views that we find out in our culture about the relationship between Christianity and the natural sciences. We'll go back and look at the historical and philosophical roots of the natural sciences to get a sense of what the true historical and philosophical connection between Christianity and the natural sciences is. And we're going to find it's substantially different than the story that's told in our culture today. We'll look at the Christian concept of knowledge. And if you go back again the first 18, 1900 years, of the history of the Christian church and their view of what we would call knowledge reflected a certain framework of thinking 
that it seems like we may have lost. And I want to go back and review that. Then the relationship between Christianity, naturalism, and science. And this is key. Obviously, we know the relationship to, between Christianity and naturalism, but who gets to influence science? Who, who controls it? What philosophies uh, underlie science that is taught today in our public schools, for instance? And then we'll get into what I call deep apologetics, and it's the consequences of intelligent design. We'll look at the war, the conflict model between science and religion, and this is uh, the official view. This is kind of a statement of the way uh, everybody sees it these days. Okay, science and religion are fundamentally different aspects of human experience that are inherently antagonistic uh, toward each other. Science is concerned with material things. Religion is concerned with immaterial things. Scientific knowledge is based on reason. Religious knowledge is based on faith. Science is objective. Religion is subjective. Got all thousands of different religions. Nobody agrees with each other on anything. That's subjective. At least that's the appearance. So who can who has a claim to true knowledge? Uh, science is about facts. Religion is about values. Now there's some truth to all of this. So to uh, the secular world and the uninformed person. All this makes sense and probably uh, is consistent with their pre-existing views about the relationship between science and religion. Keep them apart. That's the way we should treat them. Today, there's widespread public acceptance of the conflict model of the relationship between science and religion. It strongly influences the debate between teaching evolution and creationism or intelligent design, or anything that challenges Darwinism in public schools. However, no modern historian of science supports the conflict model of that relationship. Did you know that? No modern historian of science in the universities, doesn't matter. They do not support that conflict model. So how did this idea get so deeply embedded in the thinking of our culture? And that's what are the things we're going to take a look at? Origins of the conflict thesis. I don't want to spend a lot of time. It's an interesting story, but it boils down basically to two books that were written in America late in the 19th century by two different authors, a guy named Draper, a guy named White. Uh, this is his book in 1874, Draper, White in 1896. Basically, they had it in for religion. Political reasons philosophical reasons, personal reasons even. Uh, and I don't want to go into the details, but that's all information is available. And uh, so they wrote these two books, the big massive volumes, okay? And uh, that's, uh, if you get a copy of the Ugrass, that tells you a little bit about who these guys were. But the critical review of their works today by today's historians of science says that these were terrible books. They're gross distortions of history, blatant fabrications, melodramatic rather than scholarly style. Uh, in fact, you know, the flat earth idea, it came from those books, or those guys. They generated a lot of mythologies that got accepted in our culture. So everybody knows, yeah, at one time, Christians thought the world was flat. Totally made up mythology. Okay, widely read in the American universities, and after a couple of generations, the mythology was firmly established in American culture. Okay, today there's little distinction in the academy between science and materialism. The idea that a scientist might be a Christian, that's weird, man. How did that happen? That, that's, that's just the, the mindset that they have today. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, say it again, please. The flat earth theory came from their books? Yes. That really puzzles me since they were circumnavigating the globe regularly at that point. <laughs> well, there are well-documented statements 
even in the scriptures going back into a Greek classical period, clearly they understood that, that the earth was circle. It even made calculations of its radius. Yeah. They just make this stuff up. They were teaching that Christians were dumb enough to believe that. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay, the okay, the contemporary view then, and again this is in the academic world, the elite. Uh, but it's a mytho mythological view of the history of the West, of Western civilization, is told as a story of how science and reason liberated civilization from religious superstition. That would be us. Okay. And, and it's a total mythology. Okay, so this warfare mythology continues to support that mythology as well. Mythology is a powerful means for influencing the beliefs, values, and behavior of a culture. The Marxists understood this beautifully. Politicians understand this beautifully. Other historical events such as the Scopes trial in 1925 and the Galileo affair, the conflict he had with the Catholic Church, uh, were revised and incorporated along with other myths like the Dark Ages to complement the warfare mythology. So anytime this topic comes up, the first thing they drag out is not the Scopes trial and its facts, but the movie Inherit the Wind, a total misrepresentation of what happened. The Galileo trial, a total misrepresentation of the facts. Actually a very interesting case and well studied, well understood, has nothing to do with the mythological version that we hear today. No historian of science supports the conflict thesis or any of these other ideas that are used uh, to support that thesis, okay? Now, I think you all know who this guy is. If you don't, obviously, you are not part of our culture. You're not part of the American <laughs> culture. Know. You don't, you know. <laughs> Myths like Bruce Willis, die hard. You cannot kill these things. They just pop up. You say, no, no, it's not. You, you can't kill them. That's why they're so effective in affecting the control of a people, a population, their behavior, their views, and and how they vote. We get a lot of that lately. Okay. Now let's go back and look at the actual history and the philosophical roots of modern science and get an idea of its true relationship to Christianity. Modern science arose in Christian Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries there and nowhere else. Did you know that? Did you know that? No other country, not Islam, not the Jews, uh, Hebrews, nowhere, nowhere, only in Christian Europe. It was the rational Christian doctrine of a noble created order that made this possible. No other philosophical or religious system of thought, including materialism that we uh, enjoy so much today, expressed a worldview that allowed for the unique mindset necessary for science to emerge. Now, what is that mindset? It's the belief or the faith in the belief that the, the world is rational because it was created by God. And since we have the image of God in us, we can look into that natural world and discover things about the way God did it. Uh, some have said this is tr trying to understand the mind of God by exploring his creation. And there's something to that. What was God thinking about when he did this? You go back and look at the natural world, you get some ideas on that. Almost all early natural philosophers were Christian. That's what they called scientists in those days. Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Bacon, Newton, Faraday, the rest of these guys, and many, many others. In fact, some of them, a guy like Pascal, was deeply religious, and even to the point of being a, like a mystic. Uh, he had, uh, in his prayers and studies, one night he calls, he re reported something that happened to him that he was simply carried away. He called it uh, the night of fire, and his life was changed forever. He could not even write about the things that he saw, but he became, a, a, during his day, an apologetic 
for uh, the Christian faith. Pascal, now, there, there's a, the units of pressure in the SI system of units are, are named for him. Okay. Okay, and their primary motivation for scientific study was for the glory of God. When they were doing science, they were standing on holy ground. You see this in their writings and in their testimonies. Fundamental presuppositions of science then that, that came out of this. There is an objective reality that exists independent of the opinions, preferences, and beliefs of men. It doesn't make a hoot what you think about the natural world. It is what it is. It was that way long before mankind showed up on earth. It'll be that way long after he's gone and while we're here. There's not a thing you can do to change it. You may not like it. Tough. Get over it. The natural world is intelligible. This is very important. The rationality of the mind of man and the rationality of the natural world are the same rationality. They have the same rationality because they have the same author. Consequently, consequently, science is possible. The world is comprehensible to the mind of man. This is a huge philosophical, what you might call an ontological property of our existence. Number three, the purpose of science is to explore and discover the natural world for the glory of God and the good of mankind. I don't think that the natural sciences today are committed to these principles. Within the Christian view of the world, these presuppositions of science are self-evident truths. They were pre-existent in the mind of God. We are not surprised to find out uh, this relation, to, to discover this relationship. And within the naturalistic view of the world, they are all mysteries. There are some books I've read by naturalistic philosophers of science, and they address these questions. They have no idea. And there are a number of other what they call ontological properties uh, that they cannot, uh, they cannot explain. But these things are all necessary for the, for the process of science to take place. Okay, let's look at some of the attitudes expressed by some of the uh, early scientists. This, there's a bunch of them. And they, they have different testimonies, but Nicholas Copernicus, uh, he basically came up with the heliocentric view. Uh, to know the mighty works of God, to comprehend His wisdom and majesty and power, to appreciate and degree the most wonderful workings of His laws, surely all this must be a pleasing, acceptable mode of worship to the Most High. This is reflected in his writings, his, his awe and reverence for God, the Creator. Okay, Kepler, uh, he came up with the, the laws of planetary motion. Uh, geometry is unique and eternal, a reflection from the mind of God. That mankind shares in it is because man is an image of God. The chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony which has been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. During this period, guys like Galileo and Kepler, who were contemporaries of each other, who talked to each other, at least they wrote to each other, uh, they were beginning to realize that the natural world, what, however it worked, it was mathematical. Somehow or other, uh, when they finally understood, they would find out that it was mathematical. And of course, Newtonian physics is a mathematical expression of, uh, of the laws of mechanics. They were right. Uh, go to the first uh, early part of the 20th century, what we call the physicists, these guys who were responsible for relativity and the development of quantum mechanics. Uh, first, Max Planck. Uh, he was... Uh, Actually, a fundamental constant of nature has been named uh, after him. Would anyone like to venture a guess as what they call it? Planck's constant. That was a tough one. Okay, there will be more dumb questions. Okay, okay but he was uh, very devout and greatly respected. He was kind of like the senior scientist of this group of 12, probably 12 or 15 scientists that 
uh, made so much progress in the early part of the 20th century in astronomy and discovery of the Big Bang, and especially in quantum mechanics. Here's what he said in a lecture he gave in 1937. Uh, he said, and this is just the, the manuscript, both religion and science need for their activities the belief in God. Uh, big massive volume, but he concludes his lecture with the words, it is the steady, ongoing, never slackening fight against skepticism and dogmatism, against unbelief and superstition, which religion and science wage together. It's Christianity and science that fight the war together against materialism. The day we see it, the way we see it today, is it's materialism, naturalism, and science that are teamed together to fight the war against Christianity. That's not the way Max Planck saw it. The directing watchword in this struggle, and this ought to be our watchword, runs from the remotest past to the distant future owned to God. Science and Christianity together owned to God. That's the way he saw it. Uh, Eisenberg, I'll just uh, read some of the latter part of what he said. Thus, in the course of my life, I have repeatedly been compelled to ponder on the relationship of these two regions of thought, for I have never been able to doubt the reality of that to which they point. Faith and reason and science point to God. Okay? Okay, and there are others, and they all give their own particular views. So the so-called war between science and religion is a myth. There is no historical or philosophical conflict between science and religion, okay? Somehow or other, we gotta kill that myth. It's a, like a snake, that way you kill it and it divides and gets four heads and every time you kill it, you know, it's, somehow or other we gotta kill that myth. Okay, the Christian view of knowledge, okay? Now this is very important to understand why uh, the Christian community and those who hold the Christian view of the world, the biblical view of the world, uh, it kind of provides a perspective from which we should view scientific information, how we, how she would look at it. Okay, now uh, here's some of the principles that were laid down by the church fathers back in, I think they call it the patristic period, first three or four hundred years after Christ, and up until say the time of Augustine, and uh, these are the, the kind of principles that they kind of arrived at, the kind of a summary of them. There exists an eternal and transcendent truth. Life has meaning. They're trying to basically reduce it down to the very basics. There are two books written by God. This is the, the concept of knowledge. The book of God's Word, the Bible, in which he reveals his purposes in redemption. The theologians call this special revelation and the book of God's works, the book of nature, in which he reveals his purposes in creation. And the, the theologians call this general revelation. Both books are written by the hand of God. All truth is God's truth. It's the principle of the unity of truth. And truth cannot contradict truth. Scientific truth, which is true, really true, God's truth, cannot contradict biblical truth. Our understanding may be off. We may not fully comprehend certain aspects of it, but truth cannot contradict truth because all truth is God's truth. Okay, we'll look quickly at the relationship between uh, Christianity, materialism, and science. And uh, uh, clearly we know that Christianity and materialism have been in, at war since the beginning of time. That's not going to change. But the question is, what are we, what's science? Okay. Uh, the way to look at this is like a science is like this beautiful young lady. Uh, Christianity is like this good-looking, smart, intelligent, well-behaved young man. Okay? The kind that you'd like to date your daughter, you know, which I had trouble finding. Okay? Not my daughter, but the, the good-looking, young, kind, well-behaved young man. Okay? And uh, then the other guy's a young man. Uh, he's kind of ugly and brutish and, and he doesn't behave himself very well. Okay, so there's kind of a, a contest that both sides have an interest in the beautiful young lady. Okay, now, now stop the analogy right there. 
I just want to point the fact that we have a, a, a trilogy here, a, a kind of a, a three-way relationship here that only functions between two, and one eventually has to lose, and there's going to be an outsider. So the question is, who gets kicked out of the relationship here? Well, today, materialism dominates science. Christianity is on the outside. That's why Christian views are viewed with suspicion. That's why the idea of a Christian being a reputable scientist is so mind-boggling because of basically the worldview that's out there today. But the true relationship is like this. Back at the beginning of the, the founding years of science, Christianity provided the presuppositions necessary for the mindset that enabled the early natural philosophers to begin to discover the secrets of the natural sciences. Later, materialism didn't have anything to do with that. Basically, materialism was just kind of off there mumbling around. They didn't have a, they were, they were just kind of beat down. They had been kind of in the minority and had no place inside, nobody to listen to them for the last thousand years. Uh, but what they did then basically is they began to make a move on science. And they did it by impositions and they imposed their materialistic philosophy on scientific work. They did it very subtly by saying that science can only discover natural causes to explain things that we observe in the world. A little bit more on that in a minute. But the point is, whatever philosophical view is imposed on science, it becomes embedded in your interpretation and understanding of the natural world. And the real question here are, one, which worldview does the natural world support in truth? And which worldview controls the natural sciences? Well, we know the answer. The natural world uh, actually is uh, created by God, and, and it should reflect the Christian view of the world, but it's under the control of materialism. So that's a problem. So there is this feedback, and basically the loop is not has been disconnected. For 300 years, this loop was intact. The view of the natural world supported the Christian view of the world. But today, materialism has seized and controlled and dominates the science that's done in the universities and that's taught in our public schools. So that's what's fed into public education. Okay. Now, according to the official mythology then, Christianity is in conflict with science and materialism is in accord with science and that's what's fed into public education. I'm, I'm going to skip that right now. Well, no, I won't. I'll make a point here. It was not until Darwin and his naturalistic account of the origins of mankind that the general accord between science as an institution, not science as a pure discipline, and Christianity was disrupted. Darwin was central to all of this and, and all the, uh, the things that happened after that. Okay. The actual relationship. Okay. Scrape away all the garbage, the lies, the deceit, misrepresentations. What do you find? Christianity is in accord with science. Materialism is in conflict with science. The loop is closed between the Christian view of the world and the properties of the natural world. They, it's, you can see it as a created order. Uh, so we see the concord here, and here we see the discord. That's where we need to get back to. Materialism gets, needs to get kicked out of the academy out of the intellectual world. Uh, for 300 years, uh, Christianity held the intellectual high ground. And somehow or other, materialism now occupies that high ground. Somehow or other, we ceded control of the universities. And there's some history there about how that happened. Uh, but that's where it is today. And that uh, largely accounts for why we have the culture that we have today. Now, here's an assertion I'm making. The rule of the materialistic Darwinian empire in America will be taken down, not by theological arguments, they've already been made, but by the natural sciences. How will that take place? Evidence of design and purpose in the universe, observable through the natural sciences. Okay, that, and then those are the views that need to be fed into public education someday. We are a long way away from that day right now, conceptually.
So thus far, we've talked about the myth of the war between science and religion. We've shown the actual favorable relationship between Christianity and science. We've identified the two books concept of Christian knowledge, and we've examined the relationship between Christianity, naturalism, and science. We now examine the impact of intelligent design on science and its implications for Christian apologetics. And we start this out with the idea of uh, a, uh, we say, a fresh view. There were some ideas that emerged in the mainstream scientific world in the early part of the 20th century that exposed some real big problems with the Darwinian scheme of things, but they were suppressed. And this is going to talk about one of those. The greatest gap in nature is that which exists between the living and the non-living world. Materialistic dogma in the name of science, in other words, I'm going to teach you, I'm telling you, I'm going to teach you about science, but I'm really communicating materialistic dogma, okay? Materialistic dogma in the name of science holds that nature itself bridged that gap where the living world emerged from the non-living world through natural unguided processes alone. Science has been searching for that bridge for over 150 years. It's nowhere in sight, but somehow or other we got here. Now, Darwinism doesn't address that. Darwin knew better than even tried to address it. And even though occasionally you'll see publications from the National Academy of Sciences, yeah, we're just another 20 years. You know, scientists, when they say it's just another 20 years, and we'll be there, that means they don't know what they're doing. They're lost. It's hopeless. I've seen this over and over. Uh, hot fusion. We should, but right now, our country should be powered by hot fusion. If you listen to Lawrence Livermore back in 1980, no. Uh, so that's just a, a science thing, you know, it's just a cultural thing. When they make a promise, when they say, 20 more years, see, what they're really saying is keep paying me so I can get my kids through college, okay? That's what that really means, okay? So the science has been searching for their bridge, and they haven't found it, yet here we are. Now, materialistic dogma in the name of science holds that life was fitted to the environment through adaptation by natural selection. That's the Darwinian scheme of things. The natural sciences tell us that it was the other way around. And this is what the, this concept of cosmological design is telling us today. And, and our problem is we need to say, well, we see this stuff. What does it mean? How, how do we put it within the context of the, the struggle that's been going on for the last 200 years? This, this is what needs to happen. We need to recognize that right now the natural sciences tell us that it's the other way around. The natural world was fitted to life long before life arrived. It was designed. It was created by God as a home for mankind. It was a plan. Okay, so this leads us to this idea called deep apologetics. Okay, designing biology, designing cosmology. Uh, this is what I'm kind of proposing. This is where we're going with this idea. The unification of law and design and its consequences. That's what we want to look at. So we say design in, in biology, what now? Design in cosmology, what now? Well, what, the what now is we bring them together. We look for their unification. Okay. A strong apologetic. This is just a comment on Christian apologetics. A strong apologetic argument for the Christian faith based on scientific inquiry should be based on positive scientific observations and findings, not just the failure of evolution. Now, we love to beat on the Darwinist. I love it. It's I go to bed at night oh, beating on the Darwinist. Uh, wake up in the morning. I can't wait to go beat some more of their You know, they're so crazy. It's just... And to tell you the truth, though, I've got some really good friends. They're good scientists, and they're committed Darwinists, and they're not jerks. They're they're not ugly guys. They they're, they're not misbehaved. They're good people. They're good citizens, but it's that philosophy that's undermining Christian faith in our universities and public education, and that's the level at which this this battle has to be fought. Okay, so uh, we need to have positive scientific findings to build our apologetic arguments. Okay, just a couple of comments. Uh, this is really an interesting area to go back and say, well, what did the early natural philosophers, 
uh, the philosophers themselves have to say, guys like uh, Immanuel Kant and David Hume and some of the other philosophers. Well, Hume is a favorite of the, the Darwinists because he makes a very convincing argument against design, but it's a narrow uh, uh, argument made within a certain context that nobody accepts today. But that's the one they quote, and they won't argue. They'll just say, hey, Hume settled that long ago. Get out. We don't want to talk about design anymore. Okay? But when you go back and say, well, what, which is what I do, let's go back and see what Hume really wrote. And you find stuff like this everywhere. He says, what a noble privilege is it of human reason to attain the knowledge of the supreme being and from the visible works of nature be enabled to infer so sublime a principle as its supreme creator. He sees God in nature. That was typical of the philosophers at the time. Okay. Uh, then, just to give the other side, you know, equal time, uh, Richard Lewinton, an evolutionary biologist and committed atheist, uh, he made this statement publicly. Uh, we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Doesn't matter that these things are true. We're committed to this dogma irregardless of the facts. That's what we're dealing with. Intelligent design, so what? Yep, we see evidence of design in biology, so what? What does it mean? Where do we go from here? For the believer, yeah, that's hype. But they're telling us something that we didn't already know. Says, but yeah, it's neat to see this coming up by science. And the same thing in cosmology. Okay, and when we talk about the unification, now this is the next step on it, a unifying law and design. <clears throat> okay, when we talk about the unification of law and design in the biological sciences, that is seen in the discipline of systems biology, which brings together the fields of systems engineering, that's engineering design, and information technology. So they're doing reverse engineering based upon these two disciplines taken from information technology and engineering systems technology. Okay? The emergence of systems biology in the last 20 years constitutes a de facto acceptance by science of the presence of design in biology. They say it's only apparent design, but they use it as if it was real design. And today, systems biology, which only came into existence 20, 25 years ago, it's where all of the cutting research is done in the biological sciences. So it's a de facto admission, yeah, the design is real. In the cosmological sciences, the unification of law and design. So we're going to look in the cos cosmos, in the universe, and look for where we see the unification of physical laws, the laws of science, and evidence of design. It's seen in the finely tuned values of the constants of nature, the functional form of the laws of physics, the distribution of matter and energy throughout the universe, the physical structure and special arrangements of matter and energy within the Milky Way galaxy, the solar system, and highly constrained physical, chemical, and thermal processes that make up the Earth's bio bio biosphere that produce a habitat suitable for advanced animal life. Science rejects Dar design because of its implications for a designer, but it accepts law in spite of its implications for a lawgiver. There's not a lot of difference conceptually between a lawgiver and a designer. They're both involved intellectual activities. We think about the Mosaic Law. God gave uh, laws to mankind for, as a guide for his living. Uh, he imposed his physical laws on nature to guide its behavior and operation, providing a home for mankind. So design and law are the same kind of beast, so to speak, okay? Whatever scientific status must, might be assigned to law, that same status must be assigned to design. Whatever religious status might be assigned to design, 
the same must be assigned to law. So if, if, if the naturalists want to say, well, design is religion, it's just religion. That's what they say. Design is just religion because it has implications for a, a creator. Then they should also say law is religion because it has implications for a lawgiver. So they have this fundamental inconsistency in the logic that they apply to the framework of science that they practice. And of course, the problem is if they applied that ruling to to natural law, saying it was religion, then they got to throw it out. There's no no more science anymore. There's no more science. So science cannot reject law because laws form the foundation of the natural sciences. At some point, the scientific establishment and public education must be confronted with this dilemma and held to account. And we as citizens in this country have a say in this because much of the research that's done in the universities and in the country, we pay for. We have a vested interest. And it's used to support a naturalistic view. Get back to some basics. Okay, there's no dispute over the presence of physical laws and principles that govern the operation and behavior of the natural world. An understanding of these principles and laws constitutes the foundation of the natural sciences, which is what we just said, okay? There is no dispute over the appearance of design in nature, but since science cannot consider supernatural causes, it assumed that this appearance arose through random chance-based processes alone, like Darwinism. So that's just simply to lay out where they are conceptually in the science that they adhere to and impose in public education. Okay. Uh, now this is kind of a summary statement of the way we should view things. Hey, I know this is obscure and mind-numbing, uh, but these concepts are important and the idea of just kind of taking the big fire hose and hosing you down with high pressure hosing uh, like this over a short period of time is pretty tough going. But at least you're getting an exposure to some of the concepts and what they mean and where they're going. Both law and design are present and operative in nature and both are non-physical conceptions of the mind which are unobservable except through their effects. Just as we determine that there are laws that are present and operative in nature by inference from their effects, so also we determine that design is present and operative in nature by inference from its effects. We see the effects of law and design, and by those effects we study and infer what the laws are. The same is true for, for design. If you can observe it, it is natural. And if it is natural, it has a natural cause. And whether that cause reflects law or whether it if reflects design, it can be subject to, subjected to scientific investigation. So basically, the, the naturalistic scientists have no excuse. Uh, they just take the, the same principles they apply to law and go with that, and you'll be okay. Now, okay, now we're going to kind of converge on the point here. Okay, consider these things. The existence of law in nature points to a lawgiver behind nature. The existence of design in nature points to a designer behind nature. Law and design are unified in nature. In fact, the laws themselves are designed. Otherwise, we wouldn't find that the place of mankind in the universe uh, reflected in those designs. The, the unifying principle of law and design is the centrality of man's place in the universe. This is one of the most profound discoveries in history. It's equal to Big Bang cosmology. Big Bang was super for the Christian apologetics. Big Bang sounds just like Genesis 1-1. Well, what else is, is there anything else out there to support the, the creation story? The unifying principle of law and design is the centrality of man's place in the universe. When God created the universe, he had man in mind. And that's why we're seeing all these amazing details that we see in the natural world reflect that design. Every little detail is part of his plan and purpose. One way to look at this, say you got a thousand graduate students, they work cheap, you know, 
and uh, you got a job for him. He said, deploy him out into the universe. Go, f go find these interesting little observations. And it's like a little silver thread. And you, and you begin to follow that little thread. Investigate it. See where it goes. See what it does. Uh, see what it means. And so they, they do that. And so they're all out in the universe and they're following their little threads. They're pulling on the thread and suddenly these threads come together and into a, to an, a marvelous uh, event in, in, in the natural world. And then another one, they come together elsewhere. And this is happening all around. And as you're converging toward the center, there's more connections and the silver threads are getting brighter and they're getting shinier. And boy, you know, hey, this is going somewhere. And when you finally get to the middle, you find one single fact. And what is that fact? The unifying principle of law and design is the centrality of man's place in the universe. That analogy of the silver threads is exactly what mainstream scientists have found in cosmological design. And you know what? They don't deny it. They say, this is pretty amazing stuff. But their only out is to rely upon chance processes to explain it. Okay. Because law, now here's a consequence, okay? If we, if we take that step, if we recognize the centrality of man's place in the universe, because law and design are unified in nature, they must be unified in science. Now, boy, that is going to be a battle. And in science education. Okay, here's what's interesting. Now, Bill and I could, uh, Mike and Burn and maybe some others, we could go up to UNM, to the science department, and say, hey, guys, you got to rethink the way you, you do science here. And it throw us right out. Calls of security. Don't get these guys out of here. Public education, it's a different matter. So I don't know what to do with this. It's just I'm just talking strategy. Uh, we ha Science education has to listen to us. And somehow or other we can approach them with these kinds of ideas and then uh, get a hearing. I'm not saying anything great would happen, but it would be interesting and it would be a lot of fun. A lot of entertainment value. Now here's the other thing, more or less for the Christian community. The unity of science, uh, Unity of law and design in the universe leads to the proposition that the lawgiver and the designer are one. That's the deep apologetics that I'm talking about. This comes out of science. Okay, unification of law and design by man and in nature. This is just an example. Okay, there's an airplane, F-104. I used to fly that airplane. I tell you, every 18-year-old boy ought to have one of these things. <laughs> Impressed the girls. Woo! He wouldn't live very long, but man, he would have a great time. And they would be talking about him for, yeah, boy, man, the fireball. When old Jack, he went up. It's great. He'll be a hero. Okay. By what kind of reasoning do you conclude that this was designed? Amazing airplane. But this wasn't. And you know what? An old stinky seagull. Is far more amazing in its design and what it can do than that airplane. Here we see the unification of design and law. How did the, did they? Did, did anybody using his science and design this? Well, you betcha. Aerodynamics, structural materials, propulsion systems, thermal. Yeah, you couldn't do this without science. So it was using the properties of science, the knowledge of science, the natural sciences, to design this flying machine. The same process took place in making a seagull. Okay. You cannot deny the design-like properties. Okay. Intelligent agency is required for both. Okay. Now let's go back to the first question that we asked, if you, if you remember. Does the natural world point to a creator or does it point to natural unguided causes alone as the explanation for the origins of mankind, what do the natural sciences have to say? Well, we have a pretty good answer now. What has emerged from the natural sciences as a result of scientific discovery during the last 120 years is a picture of a universe in which mankind is central to its design and purpose. This is historic. It's world-changing. This is the message of the book of nature, is read and understood understood through the natural sciences. The natural sciences have revealed to us that the two books 
have the same author. This comes out of the natural sciences, not just Christian dogma. We proclaim the gospel of the cross. We also need to proclaim the gospel of the heavens, that you were specially made by God for a plan and a purpose. And let me show you where you can go to find out what that purpose is. It's in the other book. Okay. The Copernican principle tells us that mankind occupies no special place in the universe. This is what the naturalists, they look at the, the heliocentric view that Copernicus came up with and says, ha, ah, man thought he was central because of the, helios, or the geocentric view and he was at the center of the universe. He's no longer at the center of the universe. Ha, 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 you're not special anymore. That is so silly. But even the most egocentric among us could not have imagined the magnitude of the special favor shown by the Creator toward mankind revealed in his two books, in both books. The special favor shown by God to man is reflected in the book of nature, which reflects the centrality of the place of mankind in the universe. The special favor shown to God by man is reflected in the book of God's Word through the redemption of mankind. First, he provided a home. And he created us, and he saved us. Next, he will resurrect us. And this is the promise of the gospel, both gospels, both books of God. Okay. Questions? Education. I know that you. Nothing. But I mean. Nothing is happening in education. It's frozen, and that's because of court cases. And in, in particular, the Kitzmiller court case in uh, Pennsylvania in 2005. Uh, uh, ideas about intelligent design were brought up in that case and they ruled that it was religion and not science and that's the end of it. Now there's legislation taking place uh, in several states. We tried it last two or three years ago, Mike Edburn and I, which basically says that uh, all science should be taught objectively including evolution which, he, which teaches the evidence for and against and it never went anywhere here, but uh, in Louisiana and several other states that was implemented. Uh, the net effect on education, they got the law right, but that doesn't mean anything changed in education. You know, Satan is the author of lies, the great deceiver, and uh, yeah. his purposes are being... This is exactly, that's exactly right. Thank you for mentioning that. This is the, this is the, spiritual, this is the spiritual warfare, <laughs> principalities. This is spiritual warfare, and, and this is simply a description of what that looks like in our culture right now. 